0: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. And wow, I I don't even know where to start on this one, Mark. We're like, uh, I guess, what, 6, 10, 20 hours ahead of our usual recording schedule. But because of what we saw at Baku this morning, we just had to jump in and and weigh in on what happened on the streets of the Baku City Circuit. The fun thing is that you and I have not really talked about this. You were re-watching the race as I was watching it. And you know, you were not trying to give anything away, but it has been a really bizarre weekend in in some respects because we had four red flags during qualifying, uh, which tied a record at Hungary, I think going back to what was it, 2016 or 2017, something like that. And then the race itself was drama almost right from the very beginning. And, you know, my, my initial reaction after watching the race and after it was finally done, when we had that bizarre two-lap start right from the end after the red flag, was it was like one of those movies that you go and watch and you think you know what's going to happen and then you literally have to stay to the very end of the movie to know what uh, what actually happens. But it was a fantastic, lucky, lucky uh, race for both uh, Max and Lance, obviously, because, I mean. That could have ended a lot worse for for both of them than than it did, but it was very enjoyable to see that uh, you know go down the way that it did with all the drama. But there's going to be a lot of questions to ask about uh, Pirelli. I mean, we, we should talk about that obviously, but. Th- do we want to talk about uh, qualifying? Do we have enough time to talk about qualifying? Because I think we should maybe just set it up a little bit because I think that it turned a lot of heads to see Charles Leclerc on poll because I got received a lot of messages on the email about a lot of suspicions from some of our viewers and listeners as to what's going on with the Ferrari. And, you know, they, they've been not really there, uh, you know, competitive-wise over the past year or so. They had a good weekend uh, in Monaco two weeks ago, but Monaco slow-speed track, and it's a bit of a lottery. And I guess you could say that, uh, you know, if anybody has a chance, Monaco is going to be the one track if you're you're having, um, you know, if you don't have the most competitive car because you can get away with some things there. But that definitely turned some some heads on Saturday. What, what were your thoughts?
1: I think before I even reflect on what we experienced over the last couple of days, I think we took a lot of heat coming out of Monaco, especially from some of our, our newer listeners, because I think myself especially, I built that race into something that it was never going to be. I, I talked about the glamorous history, and I talked about the setting. And then ultimately, Monaco was a bit of a procession, which isn't super unusual for a dry race at Monaco. But for the better part of the last four or five, six weeks, we've been talking about that in the right circumstances, Monaco can be pretty unpredictable. It can be a little bit fun. But historically, Baku has always been fun. Mm -hmm. 2016, 17, 18, 19. Unfortunately, of course, we didn't get a race there last year. But every single time we've been to Azerbaijan, we've been to Baku, something exciting has happened. And I had a feeling, and I think a lot of us did, that even though it was going to be dry, there was no moisture in the forecast, and we've never had a wet race in Baku. And I can't even imagine what that would look like. But I think there was a sense that this could be a really unpredictable weekend. And part of that, of course, is that so many of the drivers on the grid have never been there. Uh, you talk about Nicholas Latifi and you talk about Yuki and you talk about MSC and, and you talk about Mazepin. There's a lot of drivers that just have no familiarity with that track. And then likewise, there's a lot of drivers that have been there in the past, but in a completely different vehicle. So the weekend was shaping up before we even arrived to be something special. And I think the big distinction is Whereas Monaco is a tight winding city track without any opportunity to overtake, this is a tight winding city track with one of the longest straights in all of Formula One. So there's a ton of opportunity for overtaking. So it's a very, well, it's a city track, it's a road track. It's very different fundamentally from a racing dynamic perspective. And I think the racing was fantastic today. And I think it's probably as good as it gets again, barring the fact that there were some unfortunate DNFs, which I'm sure we'll get to. But I think to your point, there's definitely some value in teeing up what we saw in qualifying and it feels like an eternity ago, but qualifying <laughs> sure yesterday, right?
0: Yeah, it, it it's been a bit of a strange weekend in that way. I, I, when I watched qualifying yesterday, I thought to myself, "How can the race become be even more dramatic than what we saw during that uh, that one hour qualifying session?" But I knew something was up when I went to go and watch it on F1 TV, and I saw the length of what the, uh, the 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 qualifying session was. I'm like, "Okay, something went on." I'm sure there must have been at least a, a red flag in here somewhere, but there there were many. And it was the, the usual kind of thing, uh, people hitting uh, the the, the, ba- or, sorry, the barriers at turn 15, which seems to be a bit of a, a notorious corner now. I mean, we have the Wall of Champions in Montreal. I mean, this one's developing a bit of a reputation on its own. I mean, it was very unfortunate, I think, that Lance uh, went off, and uh, he was the first victim uh, to, to go out in qualifying, yeah. and that really looked like it was going to ruin his race. And fast forward to today, I mean, he was looking pretty good, I mean, kind of going for a, a bit of a different situation. Uh, strategy starting on the hard tires and uh, trying to go deeper into the race and he was uh, progressing uh, you know fairly well through the pack and I think that really kind of goes to show you when it comes to uh, Azerbaijan to that circuit that like you say although it is a a road circuit it's it's very different from very other road circuits because it almost has a purpose-built racetrack feel to it in some regards that that very long 1.4 miles straight away at start finish that doesn't really feel it doesn't have a road circuit feel to it let's uh, put it that way but the way that they've been able to build this course and kind of link it together I think it has a a good mixture of both um, say a traditional racing circuit and also a a road track as well and uh, you know the thing is I mean apart from that very very narrow twisty section by the um, uh, by by the castle there is there are plenty of opportunities to over Take on this uh, circuit and not necessarily down start finish, which I thought was uh, really really uh, cool that we saw this uh, th- this weekend. Is we saw many drivers uh, overtaking one another without necessarily having to uh, th- use the benefit of DRS. I mean, it's usually a benefit, but it wasn't wasn't always on uh, display, which I thought was really cool.
1: One of uh, the takeaways I had from this race, and it was unfortunate that be- it became red flag, which we'll get to. But it was kind of like. The the event following the restart after, after the red flag was kind of like a mini Grand Prix in itself. Mm-hmm. And because it was so short, the drivers just went for it. And you're absolutely right. I think the perception going into this event is that that long straight offers overtaking opportunities. But that's in particular going to be for the Red Bulls, the Aston Martins, and the Mercedes-Benz cars, the cars that have a ton of top-end power and some really mm-hmm. great downforce. But I think what we saw after that restart, we saw ghastly and Leclerc fighting we saw lando fighting and that wasn't necessarily on the straights. that was on the city streets portion of the racetrack but i think they've got something really special here and I have to say this is probably the event that I maybe now look forward to most on the calendar. I love Spa. I love Canada. There's a couple of other events. But just because of the unpredictable nature of this track and that it offers a little bit of everything, to me, it's super special. The other thing, too, is I was talking to somebody that was actually at the event this weekend. And one of the things I was most curious about is when you see these street tracks, the surface itself typically isn't great. It's a little bit uneven. It's a little bit un. Kind of a little bit uneven, a little bit rough. And the challenge with those uneven, rough surfaces is the contact patch of the tires isn't particularly consistent so the tires don't heat up which means that the brakes don't heat up which means they don't have a lot of traction which means they tend to understeer going into corners but based on the feedback that i got from some of the folks that were there the actual surface for the race portions of the track was exceptional so the surface and you can actually see it on some of the tighter angle shots of the track the surface was exceptional so i i can't say enough good stuff about f1 and the race organizers for putting on this event unfortunately of course there was nobody in attendance except for some of the the <laughs> lucky residents whose balconies yeah, hung over right. the track, which was amazing. I'm sure there were some really great Airbnb opportunities this weekend. But again, I can't say enough about the track. I think the unpredictability offers a really compelling viewing opportunity. And I think that's 100% what we got today.
0: Uh, Blue Flags and Brian McCarthy Wayne in the live chat on uh, YouTube saying that uh, they really enjoyed this one. And uh, you know uh, Brian saying, uh, amazing, totally unpredictable and uh, so exciting. Yeah, 100%. And the one thing that... Um, while we were sitting there in that delay, right at the end, as they cleared up the the, the sorry the debris from Max's uh, accident was, uh, I, I thought, well, you know, what's the point of running, uh, you know, a couple of laps there? But it's uh, I'm glad that they did because I think that in a, a very small snapshot, it kind of gave us um, maybe a bit of insight as to maybe what we can expect from the the, the sprint races, right? Oh,
1: that was my point. <laughs> I, was, I had that right here. Well done. I, I'm well sorry, done.
0: I it. But uh, okay, well, wh- I love it. Rather than me stealing your thunder. Why why didn't you run with it? Because I think that um, it was really cool because I was watching with my wife and she said, this is going to be great because now there's no strategy. They've all got fresh tires. They've got enough uh, fuel to get to the end of the race. It's just going to be two laps completely flat out. And I thought it was great.
1: No, I think you nailed it. And I think it comes down to this. At the beginning of the race, it was funny. I'm sitting there with my wife, just like you, our poor wives are subjected to so much Formula One (laughs) racing, but we're sitting there and I'm just like, you know what? I just wish the race was an hour. And I think, I think that comes from having watched a lot of really boring Grand Prix over the last six or seven years, I didn't want to be subjected to an hour and 40 minutes of procession. And one of the things I really love about MotoGP is those races are tight and compact. And it's partly because of the physical nature of the sport. 20 20 laps, 40 minutes, those riders are done. So for me, I was hoping for kind of a, a compact event, but you're absolutely right. And one of the notes that I made is that that two lap restart was very much provided a little bit of window or insight into potentially how the drivers could psychologically approach a qualifying sprint race. Or I keep getting that mixed up. I, people keep correcting me. Mark, it's not a sprint race. It's not a qualifying sprint race. Um, it's a sprint qualifying event. But I think you're absolutely right. And I think if it's a short event and it's tight, It's going to provide a ton of unpredictability, and I think it's going to be very, very, very exciting because I think what we saw in that ever so short snapshot of two laps is hopefully what would be extrapolated over potentially 20 laps of a qualifying sprint event.
0: You know, the other thing that uh, I found uh, very interesting about this one was what with all the drama late in the race, what with, uh, you know, first of all, Max having that uh, tire failure and then the crash and then the, the, the red flag. And then at that point, I thought, OK, well, now it's just going to be default. Uh, Lewis is going to um, overtake uh, Perez on the, the the restart. Nobody expected uh, Lewis to uh, to have that incident that he did. I mean, his brakes looked like they were going to catch on fire right at the start. There was so much smoke coming off. Turns uh, turns out that uh, when um, uh, Perez uh, deked to the left, uh, that Lewis uh, took evasive action. He hit that magic button, which, uh, you know, switched the brake balance. And it was just uh, everything. The brake balance all went to the front rather than, uh, you know, ha- the, the, the brake. The rear brakes weren't engaged at all. So he just uh, overshot the corner into that runoff area. And then did what turned out to be basically worst case scenario for Max Verstappen and his championship uh, aspirations almost became a bit of a moot point because Lewis finished the race in 15th uh, position uh, you know, behind his teammate who was completely non existent all race long, oh which was shocking. Goodness. But it was uh re- really something that you know th- th- there's a great point uh Benjamin Nelson Wayne in on the live chat uh, says such a fun race to watch I realize this won't be the norm but it will be great to witness as gen DTS I have to go back and rewatch the 2019 German Grand Prix which I think is a great comparison to make because that was a bit of a, a, a wet race and a dry race and a lot of drama everybody went off at one point or another and I think that's a great comparison to make uh, with uh, with the 2021 uh, Azerbaijan Grand Prix it it was just drama and uh all you know from start to finish basically.
1: I know we're probably going to have to cut to a break here but because I had so many people asking about break magic and the magic break button and it was referred to in about 27 different ways over the course of the last 6 to 8 hours. It's interesting because one of the things that Formula 1 has always tried to do is instill a degree of competitive balance despite the huge budget disparities between the teams formula one has always fiercely outlawed what they consider to be driver aids so we're talking about things like four-wheel drive we're talking about um driver controllable center differentials that could move torque from one quarter to other or front to back Traction control, um, all of those kind of pieces. But one of the functions that has been allowed, and most of the teams have some variation of it, is this function called brake magic or a magic brake button. And what it's designed to do is be activated during a warm up lap or a formation lap. And effectively, what it does is exactly what you said: is it shifts all of the brake bias towards the front brake. So when you're going through that slow formation lap, or you're going to um, kind of going through a, a lap while you're following a safety car. The biggest concern in those moments is for the car to be at optimal performance. The tires need to have a ton of warmth in them and the brakes need to be warm. If your tires are cold and your brakes are corn cold, you're not going to be able to brake into the corners. You're not going to be able to get grip. You're not going to be able to get traction. And then if you go into a corner and your brakes are cold, your brakes are going to be far less responsive. So, in essence, what this mode does is it sticks all of your brake bias to the front wheels or about 75% of it. So when you're going on that formation lap or that safety lap, every time you hit your brakes, it's basically overloading the front corner. And that's fine because during a formation lap or a safety lap, you're you're not racing, so it doesn't really matter and it's controllable. So what Hamilton was doing by activating that previously was just trying to get some temperature into those front brakes and those front tires. The problem is he left it on. So when the race started, he went into that corner fast. He had he had Sergio Perez, but when he went into that corner, like you said- all the brake at that point went into the front two wheels. They have promptly locked up and he slid off. Unfortunately, fortunately there was no barrier there. So we went into that runoff area, but the problem was because he didn't turn it off. None of the brake bias went to the rear wheels, So it wasn't balanced. All the brake went to the front, the front's locked up. They got a flat spot. Basically his race is done. So it's, it's a driver aid and it's weird that it's allowed, but what it's really designed to do is that during those formation laps, when you're following a safety car, it allows you to get some warmth into those front brakes and those front tires. So when racing does commence, you're not going to be as cold and you'll get a little bit more grip.
0: Yeah, you know, um, when I heard about this one, uh, my immediate uh, thought was it's like engine party mode, but for breaks, you know, and then of course, you know, the the party mode was banned. Was it it last year or the year before? I mean, it's been it's been out for a little bit. Hey, Mark, uh, let's take a little bit of a a break here. When we come back, uh, we're going to talk. We need to talk about this podium. This was a pretty uh, interesting uh, podium, to say the least. And we'll talk about that in a moment when we take a break here. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Well, welcome back to the show and uh, welcome to everybody listening to the podcast. Welcome to everybody watching on YouTube, especially those of you who are watching live. Uh, it's finally cool to be able to do this uh, and have some interaction with you guys uh, in, in real time. So, Mark, uh, let's just uh, quickly run down the race classification. We probably should have done that first, uh, but you know, <laughs> drama and uh, lots of other things. Um, so it was, um, it was not to be. What we thought it was going to be. I mean, up until what was it, lap forty-four, lap forty-five, when uh, Max had his accident, it looked like he was gonna he was gonna walk this one home. Anyways, uh, the the final. We'll run down the 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 ten point pain uh, positions. We had uh, Sergio Perez winning this one for Red Bull. Sebastian excuse me Sebastian Vettel winning this or sorry coming home second for Aston Martin. Pierre Gasly coming home in third for the AlphaTauri. Charles Leclerc fourth for Ferrari. Lando Norris recovering nicely. After getting that uh, 3 uh, grid place uh, penalty for that uh, transgression in qualifying, he came home fifth. Fernando Alonso coming home quietly, I would think, in sixth. I think that's the best way to describe Fernando's afternoon. Yuki Sonoda recovering nicely after a couple of rough weekends in, in recent uh, recent times. He came home seventh. Carlos Sainz, he recovered nicely to get back into the points after that unfortunate off that he had down the escape road there when his tires were cold. He came home eighth. Danny Ricardo. Another guy that had a bit of a quiet afternoon, he finished ninth and then rounding out the top 10 was uh, Kimi Raikkonen. So a bit of a different uh, top 10. Let's just uh, quickly recap the the driver standings. Max Verstappen still on 105 points, uh, four points ahead of Lewis Hamilton, who's in second with 101. Sergio Perez is now third in the championship with 69 points. Lando Norris, fourth in the championship with 66. Charles Leclerc. 52 that's good enough for fifth in the drivers and Valtteri Bottas a distant 6 47 points for the Mercedes driver in the constructors now this is where it's getting a little bit interesting Red Bull now after 6 races 174 points in the constructors and that puts them up what uh, 26 points on uh, Mercedes they have 148 Ferrari sneaking third into the constructors uh, with 94 2 points ahead of uh, uh, sorry McLaren and then Alpha Tauri rounding out the the top five uh, with uh, thirty nine. First of all, your thoughts on uh, Sebastian Vettel and Aston Martin getting that uh, that second place? I thought that uh, you know it would need something to be a little bit dramatic because it looked like at one point he might be able to get close to Lewis Hamilton. It looked like he was lapping about half a second a lap at one point prior to Max Verstappen's accident and the red flag. And then he started to to, to lose uh, place or lose a bit of pace, and he dropped back from that uh, that pair of Sebastian or sorry uh, Lewis Hamilton and uh, and Sergio Perez. But I think it was I think it was the result that he needed to get a bit of his mojo back, especially I think it was important a big result to, to get for Aston
1: Martin. To me, there's absolutely no question that this is his best performance since probably 2018. I'm obviously ecstatic for him. I'm absolutely ecstatic for the Aston Martin team. I don't think that this result was by any means a fluke I think his pace from the jump was exceptional Mm -hmm. I haven't seen him look this racy again like I said maybe flashes early in 2019 but certainly not since probably the midway parts of 2018 late 2018 have I seen him so racy and and so aggressive He he was challenging in the corners he was looking for overtaking opportunities every time he was in the DRS zone he was stepping out looking for an opportunity to overtake on the inside on the outside he just looks thoroughly engaged as, mm-hmm. as a race car driver and I think now he's at that point where it's clicked he's comfortable with that car he's comfortable with that power unit the confidence is there and I think this is fantastic not just for him but I think it's also fantastic for the entire Aston Martin team in the factory and you and I talk so much about how imposing Lawrence Stroll is I think it mm-hmm. must be must be really tough to be a mechanic or an engineer knowing that he's looming in the garage <laughs> during every event, right? It's, it's tough to be working when your boss is right there looking over your shoulder. So I think for that team that mentally, psychologically, this is going to take, it's going to take a little bit of the edge off. I think it's exceptionally unfortunate that Lance's day ended the way it did, and we'll get there in a moment. But I think if we zero in on Sebastian Vettel, I couldn't be more ecstatic. And I don't think I would you know, if you flash back to 2010, 11, 12, 13, when he was running off those four straight drivers championships for Red Bull looking very dominant, again, a, a couple of years, it was pretty close with Fernando Alonso, but in at least two of those years, he, he absolutely ran away with the championship. I never thought that there would be some point in the future where I would be so happy to see him score a podium. But I think given the challenges that he had in his, in his second to last year with, uh, with Ferrari because of the, the cheating scandal and the, the kind of the relationship issues and the friction that became so obvious when he was racing si- alongside Charles Leclerc, I, I couldn't be happier for him. And I think this is a really, really great way to re-energize him and to re-energize that team. But I appreciate you asking the question, but I just think this result isn't a fluke. He was racy, he had pace, and he was aggressive in a way that I haven't seen in years. And I was ecstatic to see it.
0: Yeah, I agree. i I, I 100% with everything you just said. I think that uh, I was a little bit... I wouldn't say disappointed, but uh, I I thought that uh, 11th in qualifying wasn't probably the the result that he wanted. However, he made up for it and he gained three uh, places very early on in the race and he was looking uh, really quite uh, racy. And I thought that... It was a really interesting uh, little battle that was going on there between himself, Gasly, and and I think Leclerc was in there at one point yeah. as well. They, that that whole group, it kind of mixed itself up a, a, a couple of times. I thought it was uh, really, really good. But the thing that uh, that really struck me at the end was that um, after the race was over, you could um, hear the relief. You could hear the, the, the joy in his voice. And uh, I, I think it was maybe a bit of a – it might have been an AHA uh, weekend. Um, for him that, uh, he still got it. Like you say, he's finally comfortable in that car. And I, I think for, for Lance, uh, th- that must be a huge disappointment because starting so far back and the strategy that they went for, I think that, uh, that, that Aston Martin are going to be very, very disappointed, obviously relieved that, uh, that Lance is okay, but I think they wanted to, and they should have had both cars in the points.
1: Absolutely. I have to admit to, and I'll eat a little bit of humble pie here, but on Saturday, I had put up a tweet indicating that the weekend was turning into a bit of a, a horror show for Aston Martin, as you mentioned Despite the fact that this is a car that's very much tailor made for a track with a straightaway like this, and one of the, and to give a little bit of context, one of the strengths of the Aston Martin car is it's exceptionally good in long distance straights. The top speed, the top end is exceptional. So it was a little bit disappointing that he couldn't get into couldn't get into Q three. It was also very disappointing that, and again, I think we talked about it earlier. Turn fifteen, I think lance had contact he didn't finish a lap during q1 red flags came out it was looking like a horror show and i put up a a comment and one of our listeners uh, at Azam responded right away he made a really good point that this was a team that was still in a position to score a lot of points if they could be competitive on race day and just like you said very very quickly both of the aston martin cars were in the points and if not for the fact that uh our good friend, Canadian boy Lance Stroll, had the misfortune of what we now believe to be a tire failure. Both of these cars would have been deeply embedded in the points and, and done really well in the championship this weekend. But unfortunately, that wasn't to be. But that said, I think Sebastian Vettel was exceptional.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I think we've, we've, we've gotten to the point of the show now that uh, we, we need to talk about uh, Pirelli and what happened with the um, with the tires because... I think when Lance uh, had his incident, he was uh, 29, um, I think he had 29 laps on those tires. And I think that they were rated for about 40 laps. Yeah. And then also with uh, Max uh, later on, they said they had no warning that there was anything going on with the tires. It, I think that was the same thing with the, uh, w- excuse me, with, um, with Aston Martin, uh, but just uh, really shocking. I mean, it, it was either like a complete failure of the tires. Or uh, they struck some, uh, de- excuse me, some de- uh, debris, which I think that they found out uh, there There was a cut in one of Lewis's tires as well. Excuse yeah. me.
1: Yeah. And, and I think when the Lance incident happened, I think it was around lap 30, I think I, to provide a little bit of context here. So- When tires are under maximum load, so when we talk about load being applied to a tire, it's the moment when the absolute most forces are being applied to that tire. So typically it happens in one of two places. In a really aggressive high-speed corner, of which this track really doesn't have any, or it's when the car is near or very much at top speed on a straightaway. Because while the car is at top speed on a straightaway, there's a tremendous amount of downforce being applied to the car through the aerodynamics. That downforce is then spread to the suspension, which then applies it to the tire. So at the moment that Lance's tire came apart, and I think we now know that maybe there was a debris issue. I think Prelly's suggesting that that's the case. What we do know happened is that the sidewall of the tire separated from the rest of the tire. And we now suspect that conveniently that was a complete tire failure because it happened at the exact moment at the point on track where the highest amount of load would have been applied to the tire when a tire would be most susceptible and vulnerable to a tire failure. We've talked about this a lot, but go back and revisit the 2005 USGP. And then what made the max situation so, so interesting is that he had effectively the exact same failure on the exact same tire on the exact same compound on the exact same corner at the exact same point of the track so with with lance it sounded like the the announcers the broadcasters at least were leaning into the fact that potentially this was a puncture due to some debris left on the track from a previous incident but when max had the exact same failure at the same place on the same corner with the same compound tire hey it's it's no longer a question of whether this was debris left on the track and I I think for our listeners as well, when we talk about debris on the track, it's usually not metal. It's not stone. It's not rock. Typically the type of debris that's on the track that causes the most issue in terms of punctures to tires is chunks of carbon fiber. So the front wing, the side pods, the floors, the rear wing, it's all carbon fiber. And when carbon fiber explodes, it goes into millions of pieces of shards and these shards can pierce right through, right through rubber, right through tire. So the assumption was with Lance at least the, at least the race organizers, at least the announcers at Sky Sports were kind of leaning into the fact that, hey, this was probably a puncture. But as soon as it happened to Max, the benefit of the doubt shifted like, hey, this is no longer a puncture. This is a tire failure issue. And I think what's going to have to happen over the next couple of days and weeks is a really thorough investigation, both by Pirelli and the FIA, because this isn't even a competitiveness issue. This isn't even a sporting issue. This is a straight up safety issue. And I think we take for granted that both of those drivers got out of the car. Lance was clearly shook up, but when you have a puncture at that type of speed, it's very, very easy for these cars to be thrown into the catch fence on the side of the track. And fortunately that didn't happen and it didn't happen in part because the cars were so close to the walls when it happened. So they didn't have the opportunity to get lift and go into the air, but it very easily could have happened. So at this point, it looks like Pirelli is still arguing or still of the belief that this is a puncture issue. But I think all of the evidence um, suggests that this was 100% a rear tire failure when the inner sidewall separated from the rest of the tire at speed at, uh, at full downforce.
0: Yeah, you know, it really is interesting too that it was the the left rear tire on both of those cars and of course uh, this uh, circuit does run counterclockwise so there was a lot of left-hand turns obviously. And um, the the first thing that I thought of uh, I I was a little bit uh, obviously quite shocked what happened to Lance. It was unexpected all of because of the way that the TV f- feed went was all of a sudden there's Lance's car and yes there, there, there's stuff flying everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's uh, just sitting there, obviously, like you say, uh, shaken up. I mean, when you saw the pictures of him back in the uh, Aston Martin garage, I mean, he looked like somebody that had just been through something. I mean, he looked—he um, had that sort of deer and headli- uh, headlights, uh, kind of glazed look on his eyes. And then the same thing that happened with Max, it was almost a, a carbon copy of what happened. And then I thought to myself, you know what? This reminded me a, a lot of was that incident that uh, Sebastian Vettel had at Spa. Was it back in 2016? Yeah. Well, very yeah. At, at towards the end of the, uh, yeah. the the race. However, I think the difference in uh, in that time was I think that Ferrari actually pushed those tires beyond the uh, you know the suggested life of the tires but you know like we were saying just now that uh, Lance uh, his incident happened when he I think he had about 29 laps on those tires when they were rated for about uh, 40 laps I'm not sure where where maxes were but uh, like they said from the pit wall I thought it was interesting that they did include that uh that uh, radio message from the, the the Red Bull pit wall to the race director saying, you know, we had absolutely no warning that this was going to happen, that there was no indication that there was any uh, issues with those tires and uh, it, until it happened and he was into the wall. And uh, I, I thought that, uh, you know, very much like you say, it, it's a safety issue because that's what they said, you know, we should consider red flagging this uh, race immediately so everybody can come in and change their tires. Either that or, um, you know, stop the race, right? I mean, especially at that point, this was not a low speed corner this is like you say at maximum load they're doing 200 plus miles an hour and yep. they're just fortunate that those cars didn't go up into the into the fencing or roll or something like that i mean they're both very fortunate uh, that uh, that they came to a relatively quick
1: stop It's important to understand as well, and you've hinted at this a couple of times, that when Pirelli provides the teams with the tires, they provide them with an operating range. So they say in these conditions, at these temperatures, at this time of day, the, the optimum number of laps would be this, or they provide a ceiling and a basement in both the case of Lance and in the case of Max. The teams were well within that range. like They weren't pushing the range that Pirelli had provided. They were both Mm -hmm. in the safe zone. Now, here's a fairly alarming comment that's being reported, but Mario Isola, Pirelli's head of Formula One, is indicating that early evidence suggests that debris – was the cause of the two tire failures at Baku. He also suggested that Lewis Hamilton had been fortunate to avoid the same fate because they, they discovered a cut on his tire. So at this point, and I think things are probably going to change in the next few hours and days. And we'll probably talk a lot about this on Thursday, but at this point, Pirelli's official position seems to be that these weren't tire failures, that these were punctures. It's, It's just, for me, almost impossible to reconcile what I saw with what he's saying. The fact that the exact same failure happened on the same corner of the same tire of the same compound at the same speed at the same point of the track its Mm -hmm. just it seems absurd and the other thing too is yeah. the teams have telemetry and data so if the tires have a puncture it doesn't normally immediately lead to a tire failure they'll see something in their data to suggest that there's an issue with this tire and both in the case of Aston Martin and Red Bull the engineers saw nothing to suggest that those tires the or the uh, integrity of those tires have been compromised by a by a by a track debris
0: Yeah, I mean, you raise a a great point. I mean, it happened virtually at the same point on the track under virtually, say, the the, the same conditions, right, and circumstances. And of course, this is a a track where we see a lot of drama. And, you know, out of every track, I mean, there is going to be a good chance that people are going to be touching the walls and the barriers and losing bits and pieces off of their cars. And, you know, the carbon fiber, when it shatters, it's it's very, very sharp. I mean, that's a logical conclusion. However, if it was um, solely because of the debris that was collected, to me, it would be a little bit more random. It would have been, it it could have happened like around the the, the circuit. I mean, the the fact that these happened within a couple hundred meters of each other on that uh, start finish uh, straightaway. And like you say, the sidewall separated the way that it did, it just. it it just it takes credibility away from that, um, <laughs> that that explanation. I mean, there might be something to it, but I'm I'm very skeptical about that. Let's let's just put it that way.
1: Yeah, I don't have a lot more to add other than the fact that I'll be very interested to see how this <coughs> plays out of the cu- course of the next couple of days. The one yep. thing that I, I should add as well, and this is important for folks that are newer to the sport, but historically Formula One has had multiple tire suppliers, so teams yeah. would negotiate with different companies to be a, a supplier. For that team, and in the past, you've had Michelin and you've had Goodyear. Formula One's kind of in a unique place right now, where they only have one tire supplier. And I'll be very honest; I feel like in many ways, Formula One needs Pirelli more than Pirelli actually needs Formula One. From a marketing mm-hmm. perspective, uh, we we know that Goodyear and Michelin were a part of the the Formula One world going back years and decades, and both of them opted out, and there was a very specific reason they opted out. So I I think from a, a Pirelli perspective. This is really, really unfortunate, and hopefully they're very transparent with their findings. But ultimately, Formula One's also in a fairly vulnerable position because there's only one manufacturer that seems interested in supplying this series. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. that shouldn't have an impact on what the outcome, the honest, transparent outcome of this investigation is. And if it was due to track debris and a sharp piece of carbon fiber that that compromised the structural integrity of that tire, which led to the tire failure. So be it. Let's see some evidence. I just, I don't believe that's the case. And I think there's still two more events that I was reading where a similar mix of compounds, the C3, C4, C5 is going to be delivered. That's going to be at Russia and at Abu Dhabi. But I think at least in those two cases, there's no point on either of those tracks where the tires would see the same load that they saw in the straight. So maybe the risk isn't as high, but certainly something to consider. And I'm sure the FIA and Formula One, the teams, and Pirelli are going to be regrouping over the course of the next couple of days.
0: Well, I'm going to disagree about with that to a certain extent because uh, at Saatchi, we do have that very long start-finish uh, straightaway as well, where they come out of a fairly slow speed corner just after the, 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 the pit entry there. But it is interesting that um, that it is the, the softer compounds in the Pirelli range, the C3, C4, and C5, so they're softest uh, tires. So they're going to have to do uh, a lot of thinking and uh, and soul-searching and uh, investigation into what yeah. really happened. Anyways, uh, Mark, let's take another quick break here when we come back. I think I think we need to talk about uh, Valtteri Bottas. I think what we saw today is a pretty, pretty good indication of that. Things are probably starting to come to an end for him, unfortunately at Mercedes. And we'll talk about that in just a a moment. So, yeah, it is, isn't it? So don't go away. We'll talk about that in just a moment. All right. Well, welcome back. Uh, you're with Mark and Mark. Again, uh, we're talking about uh, the Azerbaijan Grand Prix and all the drama. Uh, we did talk about the the final race classification. Um, well, I mean, poor old uh, Lewis Hamilton didn't really work out uh, very well for him. It obviously did not work out uh, very well for, uh, for, for Max Verstappen. We have to talk about the championship implications or the bit of the stalemate. Lewis, after it was all said and done, ended up in P15. The thing is that his teammate, Valtteri Bottas, finished in P12, and he just struggled all race long. I mean, he didn't really qualify all that well. He qualified in what? Was it 10th? And then just, um, I, I know that there was probably a bit of the team game going on there, giving Lewis a bit of a toe, which kind of uh, helped, although they never really did get a chance to set those final hot laps at the end of uh, Q3 because of the... Uh, the, uh, the 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 crash there, just one of many, but uh, it's, uh, you just have to think that uh, maybe sadly the writing on the wall is there for, for Voluntary Bajas. I know that we've talked about it. We've kind of made a little bit of light of that uh, situation at times, but I, I'm, I'm going to go back to the point that uh, I've made, uh, you know, despite some of the, you know, poking fun at him a little bit, maybe then uh, making light of, uh, you know, the so-called championship uh, contender and stuff like that. The thing is that since he joined the team in 2017, he's done absolutely everything that uh, he's needed to do for that team. He's brought home so many uh, points for them. He's helped them win championships. He's won a bunch of races himself that, uh, you know, unfortunately for Valtteri, the winning the world championship was probably just a little bit too, too far beyond his grasp. But just the way that things seem to be unraveling in real time, it's... It, I just don't have a lot of confidence that, uh, that that they're going to renew that contract for him and now I'm starting to get a real bad vibe that maybe he doesn't see out the, the rest of the season.
1: I couldn't agree more and for those of you that listened to us on the Thursday show, we actually talked about this a little bit if you haven't heard, I, I still recommend you go back and listen, it hasn't dated it was more kind of like a standalone kind of a standalone show that just kind of assessed the current state of Formula 1 and all the great things that the sport's been doing from a growth perspective but our guest during that show, Matt Sakaris, had actually made the comment that he did didn't believe that Valtteri Bottas would finish the season in a Mercedes car. And I'll be honest, man, at, at that time, I didn't disagree, but I kind of thought it was a bit of a hot take. And mm-hmm. after this race weekend, I no longer think that it's a hot take. I think he was genuinely onto something. And I think for Mercedes, when you're talking about the Constructors' Championship and now also the Drivers' Championship being on the line and with it tens of millions of dollars of prize money and sponsorship money... You can't afford to continue to put somebody in that seat that maybe is, and this is going to sound so bad, but maybe has some psychological damage or baggage. And obviously the the crash in Imola, that wasn't his fault. He got collected by Russell and he went off. The pit stop fiasco in Monaco was super unfortunate. The team still decided to assign at least some of the blame to him, which was unfortunate, but his pace and his performance and Baku was just unacceptable from free practice to qualifying and to your point he qualified 10th he had opportunities to pass he he wasn't racy he didn't seem aggressive and I think the other consideration too is and I don't want to get super technical on this but it looks like he and Lewis had diverging opinions on which wing they were going to put on their car for the race and Mm -hmm. for whatever reason Valtteri Bottas decided to go with a bigger wing, which isn't necessarily what you would bring to a track that has a really high speed section because that bigger wing creates more drag, which doesn't allow you to be as fast on the straight. And I think based on some of the documentation, the evidence I suggested, that could have been costing him as much as a 10th of a second per lap uh, relative to his teammate Hamilton. But ultimately... Wearing that wing was still his choice. The driver decides which wing is going to be on the the car. Like, to me, the entire weekend was really problematic. And, For me, if I'm Mercedes and I wasn't confident in bringing him back, and obviously they weren't because he's not under contract for next year, at this point, why do you let him ride out the season? Why not look at doing a driver swap with Williams right now? You take, you take Will, or you take Russell, you put Williams in the, or you put uh, Bottas in the Williams car. There's some cash that's exchanged as well to compensate for the size of the Bottas contract. To me, it almost seems logical that this is going to happen. And again, maybe Bottas runs off three straight podiums going into the summer break or three or four Mm -hmm. top five finishes and the conversation changes but i just haven't seen enough yet to suggest that that's the case and even in the three podium finishes that he had he had a podium in bahrain he had a podium in portugal and in spain relative to the number one and two spots he wasn't even remotely close he wasn't contending to win any of those three races
0: yeah, you know, it, it really is interesting when you look at it. And, and you bring up a great point uh, just that, um, you know, the comments that Toto Wolf made after Monaco that uh, Valtteri wasn't squarely in his marks for the pit stop uh, where they, you know, that wheel nut shredded and yep. basically dustified when they uh, put the wheel gun onto it. It's... Um, it was almost like one of those uh, situations that uh, when you get rear-ended uh, in yeah. a, just a normal traffic accident, it's like the the insurance company automatically assigns you like a very small percentage of the blame just because you were you were physically present, even though you didn't actually, you know, that somebody else drove up the backside of your car. But uh, I, I thought that was very funny because uh, that that he should say that because you know, Volteri. I mean, in his rebuttal to that comment was, "Well, I've gone back, I've looked at the video, and I'm I'm pretty sure I'm spot on my marks," yeah. you know. So I thought that was a a very interesting indicator that maybe things aren't really quite, um, you know, stable or hunky dory, whatever you want to call it behind the scenes there between uh, Mercedes and, and Valtteri Bottas, which I think is a shame uh, if it, if it turns out that way. I mean, we, we've talked about it that obviously that uh, he's not the long-term solution to that team, but there is no doubt and no taking away what he's done for this team over the past uh, several years. And I've, Honestly, I think it would be a real shame if they were actually to pull the plug on him halfway through the season. I know that uh, you know George Russell's been making noises that uh, not necessarily that he wants uh, you know that Mercedes seat. I think everybody wants one of those uh, Mercedes uh, seats should they become uh, available either one or both of them at the end of the year. But I mean, you you can understand from George's point of view that he's kind of languishing a bit when you know, see like a lot of those other guys his, in his same age group, like uh, Pierre, like Charles, like um, you know Max and Lando, all getting these uh, opportunities while he's languishing at the at the at the back of uh, of the grid and the Williams. So I mean, he's obviously going to be gnashing at the bit and chomping at the bit, uh, ready to get into uh, you know a, a better car. It's just. And unless they become desperate and if you read some of the comments that Toto is making in the media after this race today that uh, that these past two weekends are unacceptable and when they're ch- like they come out and say all the time that they're chasing perfection that these two past weekends have just been disastrous and unprecedented since uh, 2014
1: yeah two thoughts and I don't disagree with anything that you said but I think the first thought is it would be very unlike Mercedes to make a change like that. In, in a lot of ways, they have very mm-hmm. much been the benchmark of consistency and stability over the course of the last six or seven years. They don't make, they're not reactive and partly because they've never really needed to be reactive. They'll have a bad race and they'll make some adjustments and they'll adapt and make changes, but they're not typically super reactive and don't overreact to make emotionally driven or emotionally charged decisions. I think that might change here. I I would add, though, that there has been some interesting comments from Toto directed at Christian and the Red Bull team for some of their midseason driver swaps over the past, past couple of years and some of the kind of fallout that that's led to. I think the other consideration is this. If you're considering George Russell, but you're not absolutely convinced that he would be the right fit for your team, why not let him finish the balance of the calendar? give him 10, 15 races in this car. And if you like what you see, then you can commit to a contract because I think that would probably logically be a really wise look because right now he's in a car that is so uncompetitive relative to the rest of formula one, that it's very difficult to establish just how capable he is as a driver. And of course he's been pre-assigned and pre-ordained as the replacement for either Lewis or Valtteri Bottas if that seat becomes available. But again, we don't necessarily know what he's capable of. And he's and he's done some testing in the Mercedes, obviously had that opportunity in Bathrain at the back end of last season. And it was kind of a, a disruptive affair because of some issues in the pit, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. But if you're considering giving him a contract and you don't really know what his capabilities are because he's never been in a competitive car for more than a single race weekend, why not make that change now? Let him finish the balance of the seat season in the car, and then you'll Mm -hmm. have a really clear perspective on whether you do want to commit to him for one or two years, and then you can sign him to that contract. But if you put him in that car for 15 races, and he's equally as uncompetitive as Bottas, or he's not showing the same flashes that you would have expected based on where you thought he was, then you're not making a mistake by, by committing to him for one or two years. Like to me now, financially, logistically, it just makes sense to make that change because You might be eyeing George Russell at the end of the season, but he's still something of an unknown quantity simply because he's never driven a competitive car for an extended period of time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've got a, a couple of points that I want to make and we'll do so. We've got to take another quick break here and we'll talk about that in just a moment. So stick with us, guys. We're not going in anywhere. I felt cheated after 51 laps. I felt like this race should have been extended. I know it was <laughs> impossible. So we'll go a little bit longer tonight. We won't deny everybody else the opportunity to revel and enjoy Four this hours. one. And we'll here we go. Stuff. Four hours. Here we go. Four hour extravaganza. And uh, we'll uh, come back in just a moment. So don't go away. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. We're talking about Mercedes now. We're talking about uh, George Russell. We're talking about uh, Voltaire Bottas. And Mark, you raised a couple of really good points. And uh, I I don't think that there's a question that George is a very um, talented driver. But like you say, he is a. An an unknown quantity. And I think that what Mercedes should do right now is I think they need to step back and take a real objective uh, look at this and try and cool the situation because you have George on one side saying, I want my future, uh, you know, sorted out by the summer post 2021, Valtteri saying the same thing. And, um, you know, they're, they're not really coming out and saying, Mercedes, I want my deal by the summer break, but I mean, they kind of are in a, in a, roundabout way. I think what they need to do as an organization, it would make sense to put it off until the end of the year. I mean, there would be nothing worse than to make a rash decision and switch it around. I mean, Red Bull's done it a, several times now. And, uh, the only time it really worked out was, uh, with, with, uh, Max Verstappen and Max was obviously, he was a bit of a gamble. I mean, he was Obviously, very talented as at, at seventeen or whatever it was when he put that when they put him into that car, but it absolutely was a big gamble. And what they've tried to do with Albon and what they did with Gasly that obviously didn't work. And uh, it, it seems that Perez is starting to settle in. It, it's taken him several races, but I think that he looked great. Uh, during this race i mean the qualifying was i I think you got to put an asterisk beside that just because of yuki's crash and then uh, carlos uh, trying to take evasive action and then just with less than uh, you know a couple of minutes left they just uh you know you know canceled and red flagged the entire session so that kind of um kind of i I think you got to put an asterisk besides uh, sergio's uh, qualifying this weekend but in the race i think he did uh, very very well but i mean if you See what, uh, you know, you take that sort of Red Bull situation, what they've had, that sort of rotating driver uh, situation with driver number two over the past uh, couple of years. That would be very un-Mercedes-esque, yes. yeah. right? Because so. they threatened to do something when it got nasty between Lewis and Nico Rosberg at sort of that, that peak venom toxic situation that they had. And I mean, uh, Nikki Lauda said it at one point, Toto said it at one point, that we will not hesitate to cancel one or both of these drivers' contracts if they can't learn to get along and at least function so we can do what we need to do. And that's win races and win championships. I mean, ultimately, I think there was some sort of uneasy truce or stalemates declared. And I think they just got on and uh, at the job at hand. And I think he very much had one side of the garage for Lewis, one side of the garage for, for, for Rosberg. But I mean, the, the one thing that is unusual is that they are not used to being in this uh, position uh, in, in the championship. Is it over and done with? No. I mean, we're only six races into a 23 race season maybe <laughs> we'll see how it turns out at the end of the year but there, the the point is there's still a lot of racing to go and Lewis is only four points behind Max in the driver's championship I mean by rights he should have been a lot further ahead of Max after this one but drama and then in the, in the constructor side, Sergio did everything that he needed to to do today. He stepped up and he managed to, I mean, he was obviously benefited from uh, Lewis uh, having that incident at t- turn one on that uh, restart, but he was battling issues of his own because I mean, he was ordered to stop the car because of a reported, I think it was hydraulic issue. And uh, they were actually thinking of retiring that car at one point. So it's turned out to be Worst-case scenario for uh, Mercedes could have been worst-case scenario for Red Bull, but at the end of the day, Red Bull and Max Verstappen come out much better off than uh, Mercedes, and the point that I'm trying to make sort of long and roundabout is that uh, even though it would be very unusual for them to make a driver change mid-season, That they are in an unprecedented uh, territory. And if this sort of run of poor results continues and they see that gap, especially in the constructors uh, continuing to grow. That's uh, who knows that uh, I think that's a bit of an unpredictable and, um, very hard situation to make a call on, especially on the outside.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I think the way you've summarized it is perfect. This is unprecedented territory for the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team. They are now, they're still second in the constructors, but they're 20 to your point, 26 points behind.
0: Yeah. I think it was 26. Yeah. yeah.
1: But I think more importantly, they have one points finish in the last two Grand Prix. So mm-hmm. aside from all the mayhem and all the craziness, you know, <laughs> Lewis was in a position where he should have won the race today. And that was driver error. That was straight up driver error. His teammate had a horrible performance. That was driver error that was all bosses and again you know what you could attribute some of that to the setup of the car but again he had fp1 fp2 fp3 and qualifying to sort that out and they didn't sort it out and he was terrible in the race and i don't attribute that entirely to the wing i don't int- attribute that entirely to the setup i think that's a large chunk test like they, this is just unprecedented territory for mercedes and what makes this different is that in the past, we've they've had some bad races, right? Like we talk about Germany 2019, that wasn't a good race. has... Bottas- Um, touched some paint when the track was wet and he spun out and he was done. I think Hamilton finished ninth or tenth in that race, but they rebounded Mm -hmm. and typically Hamilton does a really good job of rebounding after a tough performance and typically winning. But you look at this season, he had a bad performance in Monaco because he finished P7 and he was very critical of the team. He was very negative post-race in ways that we don't typically see from Lewis because he'll typically assign credit to the team, but he'll also take blame when he feels it's necessary but post Monaco he was very critical of the team and he kind of he kind of reeled some of that back in over the next couple of days but he didn't bounce back in the way that you thought he typically would have here and again a big chunk of this is a single error at the end of the race but it doesn't explain the Bottas performance it's just it's unprecedented for this team and it's good for the championship like don't get me wrong I am not I am not releasing white doves into the sky to mourn <laughs> the death of Mercedes-Benz, right? This is what we all want. We want a closer championship. We want some parity, and we want some excitement down to the wire. I think what we're saying here is that based on everything we've seen from 2014 onwards, this is unprecedented. And it's good yeah. for the championship. It's good for TV viewing, and it's good for everybody watching at home. It's just unprecedented. And maybe, and maybe this is a bit early, but maybe this is the end of Mercedes as we know it, especially as Red Bull continues to come into form. And as Perez gets more and more comfortable with that car, he won a race three weeks Mm -hmm. ago. We were talking about whether this was the right decision, whether he'd be back next year. He just won a Grand Prix with Red Bull, his second in what, eight, nine months. That's fantastic. And Ferrari has been a little bit racier than we expected. And Aston Martin is starting to show some flashes. I think the championship is going to be competitive, maybe in ways that we didn't expect. And I think our expectation was it's going to come down yeah. to Lewis and and it's going to come down to Max and it probably still will for that driver's title. But I don't know what it's going to look like from a constructor's perspective. And maybe it could be a little bit less clear than we would have thought. And again, that's good for all of us at home because if Ferrari and McLaren and now Aston Martin are chipping in and stealing away some of those constructors points every single weekend, it just makes the uh, the chase at the top that much more interesting.
0: You know, I, I want to get your thoughts on this, but uh, watching this race for at least up until the point where when Max had his uh, his uh, his incident that I felt like I was watching like a like a body swap or a roll reversal. Because I thought that the two Red Bulls looked really, really good. And then Lewis was kind of in that Max Verstappen zone, right? Or where Max used to be, kind of in that uh, close, but not quite uh, close enough. I mean, the one thing that I must admit with Lewis's car, I found that his straight line st- speed down that start-finish straight was jaw-dropping. I mean, the way that he was able to really close up to valtteri even before he hit that uh, DRS zone, I thought was very impressive. I mean, pardon me, to, uh, to, to Sergio. Yeah. But then it was interesting when you got past the start finish and you went through turn one, the other basically 75 or 80% of the track, Sergio was just able to just increase that gap enough just to keep Lewis at at arm's length. I know you had that second uh, DRS zone after turn three, sorry, turn two between uh, uh, turns two and three there. And Lewis would, uh, would kind of close back a bit, but then, you know, Sergio was able just to eke it out just enough that Lewis did have a couple of looks here and there, but it never really got to the point that I really felt, oh, this is the point that he's really going to make it uh, stick. And I think that, uh, you know, to your point uh, that uh, this is the second race that uh, Checo was won in the past uh, year. I think that the you know although it was great I thought that it was wonderful that he won that uh, race at uh, Sakhir at the end of last year this one I think was more impressive especially after I hear afterwards I mean it was just it was it was astounding to see how the air went out of uh, you know no pun intended went out of Red Bull on the pit wall I mean the body language and the way that they looked defeated I mean just from Max going and kicking the tire to the way that Christian Horner was literally slumped over the console in, in grief almost was uh, it was, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. Not, not especially in recent times. And then you hear afterwards that, uh, that Sergio was battling what was, I think it was like a, an undisclosed or maybe unconfirmed uh, hydraulic issue. I think it's just uh, even that more impressive. I mean, of course he didn't have to fight off uh, Lewis uh, over those last two laps after that, uh, that, that restart incident, but you know, still, I mean, you, you had a very pacey looking, um, you know, Sebastian Vettel behind him and, you know, he had a very pacey looking Pierre Gasly. I mean, if that race, if that red flag happened, maybe a lap 40 or 41 with 10 laps to go, who knows? Maybe that was uh, Sebastian Vettel on the top step. Maybe Perez doesn't even finish that race. So I think that uh, he really, I, I think that um, obviously that uh, there were several uh, outings at the beginning incidents at the beginning of the year that, I wouldn't say didn't endear himself uh, to the team. I think that's maybe going a little bit uh, too far, but it certainly wasn't what he wanted to deliver and it wasn't what the team really needed. But I think by saving the uh this victory, which was so cruelly snatched out of Max's uh, hands, he still brings the win home for the team. And crucially, he brings home those 25 points in the constructors, because I think that uh, Paul DiResta said it, right after Max's uh, incident there, that he said this could be a championship-defining moment. And it could have well been. Of course, Paul didn't have the benefit of having a crystal ball to see what would happen after the restart. But uh, the, the the driver's championship is still wide open. It's still completely in play, as is the constructor's championship. But you know, you just have to keep that in your mind uh, for, for the time being until it swings dramatically one way in the, or the other for Mercedes at Red Bull. You know, come December after Abu Dhabi, this could be one of those moments that we look back at uh, this period in May and June that could have potentially cost Mercedes a constructors championship.
1: I'm going to take a bit of a gym room colin coward hot take on this one but have a take don't suck (laughs) (laughs) i just i don't see how mercedes comes back from this and you're right like if you look at the driver's championship it's just a couple of points if you look at the constructors championship it's 26 points it's not crazy i just feel like all of the momentum is in the favor of red bull right now all of the momentum the one question that this team had all year was is sergio the right fit is he going to find a comfort zone in this car? Is he going to learn the car? Are they going to be able to adapt the car to him? Clearly that's happened. Despite the fact that qualifying mm-hmm. wasn't great, his race performances have been very, very strong. So if I'm if I'm buying stock in one of these two teams, I'm selling off my Mercedes stock and I'm clearly loading up on Red Bull stock. Like That's where all my confidence is right now. And to kind of address your point too, you're absolutely right. When, when Max went down, I think the mentality in that team was, We just lost the ability to pick up 10 or 15 points on Mercedes. And to your point, they couldn't have known what was going to happen with Lewis, but ultimately the results swing right back in their favor. And it was really great to see. It was great to see at that podium ceremony that Max was standing there right between Christian Horner and Helmut Marco cheering on the success of Sergio Perez, because Mm -hmm. that, that victory for Perez was as much about the team's fortunes as it was even Sergio's personal fortunes, right? He ultimately put 25 points between them and Mercedes in the constructors championship. So for that team, Despite what happened to Max, it's unfortunate, but it was a great weekend overall for Red Bull. And from a Max perspective as well, I feel heartbroken because, and they were talking about this on the Checkered Flag podcast and Jenny Gat was talking about this and Julian Palmer and everyone else. He didn't step a foot wrong all weekend and he drove a masterful race. And when he was on the track, he was regularly three or four seconds up on his teammate, Sergio Perez. And you're right, Hamilton was keeping he was keeping he was keeping sergio honest and he would have an opportunity to get close under drs on that straights but as soon as they got into and i call it kind of the the city section of the track where they're kind of fighting in between the buildings he would grow that lead again and then they get on the straight and hamilton would close it up a little bit but sergio wasn't giving him the opportunity but yeah i don't know where i was going with that one but i i just feel like <laughs> mercedes isn't a much more profound position right now. And I'm much more worried about Mercedes than I certainly am Red Bull. Red Bull seems to have the momentum and it seems like the one puzzle piece they'd yet to figure out, which was that Sergio piece, Mm. they kind of slotted into place this weekend with that race win, despite the fact that Max wasn't able to finish.
0: They uh, the the word that immediately pops into my mind uh, regarding Mercedes is they look vulnerable. Yes. And that is yes. that that is not something that that is not a word that has ever popped into my mind ever since I would say after 2014 after it became clear that this was the team to beat. I mean they've been literally bulletproof for almost a decade now which is you know a- a- amazing. But that's why I was saying a little while ago that it seemed like it was a bit of a role reversal. I mean, those two Red Bulls looked like they were on rails and... You know, I'll, I'll be completely honest, like, uh, and and I, I think um, I'm probably speaking on your behalf as well, that uh, prior to this season, I really got emotionally invested into um, Aston yes, Martin. This was the team that I 100%. really wanted to see do well. I mean, there was the, you know, the, the the sort of redemption story with Sebastian Vettel. You got the Canadian connection with the with, with Lance Stroll, you know, the local boy, so to speak. You got the Canadian connection with his dad and the fact that, uh, you know, for all intents and uh, purposes, uh, that, uh, that we're going to call it a Canadian team. I, I'm, I'm coining the, the you're tra- trademarking the the phrase now Canadian Racing Green, <laughs> although I might get, get some disagreement on that. But, uh, anyways, that was a team I really wanted to to, to see do, uh, do well. But I, you know, I really this race hooked me today, and I was I was really found myself pulling for Max. I found myself pulling for Sergio. I found myself really pulling for red bull to take this home to, to to collect the maximum points because you saw lewis wasn't quite able to you know really make a move on Perez and get past him and really attack uh, max you saw voluntary slowly slipping back through the race order and it, it just had that um it was, I guess, because it sort of adds to that bigger narrative that um, that it, it adds more in terms of the, the fascination and the way that this uh, championship or the championships are de- developing. That if it finished that way, and then when Max crashed, I was like, "Oh, here we go again." Lewis is going to walk, and he's going to he's going to inherit a, a race victory that he doesn't deserve. And I, I must admit, I felt deflated. And then, you know, we have that. Uh, that 15 or 20 minute delay as they cleared up all the debris and uh, removed max's car from the track they go back around i thought well what is this going to be is this going to be like a you know rolling start standing start it turns out to be a standing start and i'm I, i'm really fascinated i'm really into it at this point that we're going to see basically this two lap sprint, and then you know the, the race restarts and then it looks like lewis is going to take that uh, that position he goes wide and then you see all these things happening you see all the cars switching uh, position there and then you got Sergio Lidi, then you've got uh, Vettel, and then you've got uh, Gasly. And I'm like, I don't want this uh, race to uh, end in two laps. It should be automatically extended another 25 or 40 laps or something, just because this has been the, the, the best race of the season And, and so you far. say that,
1: though, and I wrote this down. At lap 15, I was already saying, I wrote it down in my notes, at lap Mm. 15, this was the race of the year. And none of what we've been talking about had even happened yet. It was just, it was very racy from the beginning. You saw Hamilton pass Leclerc, and you saw Max pass Leclerc, and and you saw Stroll move up five spots, and you saw Vettel move up a bunch of spots. Like, it it was a race overtaking was happening. And somebody uh, just popped up on our, our F1 feed here as well. F1 Fred from Yorkshire. This is really, this reinforces everything that we're talking about in terms of being the championship being more wide open than we've seen in many years. But he puts here, here's how many points Mercedes had scored after six races in the internet or in the uh, hybrid era so 2014 they had 240 points after 6 2015 242 2016 188 2017 179 2018 178 2019 257 that was their best start of the hybrid era 2020 221 points and so far after 6 races 148 so when we talk about the championship being wide open, hopefully this provides a little bit of context relative to where Mercedes was at this point in the season in all of the years preceding this during the hybrid era.
0: Yeah, you know, that really is uh, fascinating when uh, when you look at it. I mean, uh, e- even this time last year, I mean, that 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 is a big, big difference. 148 points compared to 221. I mean, they really were on fire literally in uh, 2019 and 2020. But uh, it, it really... Th- those numbers are really staggering when you see them in, in, in black and white. You know, it, uh, it, th- that is an amazing stat right there. You know, it, it really, really is. Yeah. Hey. So uh, I, I think we're getting to the point where we're going to wrap it up. But uh, before we go, I want to end it on a bit of a fun note. Uh, we got a, a comment here in the live chat from uh, Brian McCarthy. He says, "What's the best race to go to in Europe? Can't wait to go to my first race. Silverstone is the closest race to me, but not sure if it'd be the best first race ever." We've we, we've talked about some of the um, you know the the some of our choices I think uh, before, but sort of in general, I think uh, for for me, um, Spain is still a good one because um Barcelona is uh, it's only half an hour away it's easy to access by uh by shuttle buses and things like that that's what we did and it was a uh, literally hop on a bus and you're there in half an hour and the bus drops you off like a it's a, it's a five minute walk from the front, uh, front gate uh, entrance to the to the circuit another one I would love to go uh would be to to Monza just for the the experience you know when fans are allowed to go and watch races in person again and another one that uh, I don't actually know anybody that's uh, been personally but I've heard anecdotally that uh, Hungary is a good one to go and attend because Budapest is uh, fairly accessible and is uh, within about, I believe, half an hour of the track. And uh, from what I understand, that is maybe a bit of an underrated—I don't want to say undiscovered—tourist uh, uh, destination in Europe. But uh, you know, from from what I've read, uh, from you know, just doing some researching on my own, that uh, it seems to be a bit of a underrated uh, you know place to go to in Europe as well. I'd, I'd be interested to hear some of your takes as well. I mean, some some of the other ones. I mean, Silverstone's difficult to, to get to; it's out in the country a bit. Spa would be a wonderful to, one to go to, but again, it's out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, it can be a little bit uh, difficult to access, especially if you're driving into the track and it's not like there's lots of hotels close by. I think a lot of people go there and camp. So interested if you got anything no, to add to that, Mark. Really.
1: I, and we've talked about this uh, a bunch of times. I think our listeners know I'm a huge fan of Silverstone. I've been there many times. I've yep. seen MotoGP there, Formula One. You make a great point, though, that it is a little bit detached from an urban environment. It's about 40 minutes outside of Milton Keynes and probably an hour from Oxford. So if you stay at a hotel, expect that you're going to have quite a drive in. And if you go early in the morning, even on race day, you'll be able to get in and get your parking spot quickly. And I. I would I would suggest don't don't try to get there later than seven or eight a.m. To be totally honest, uh, otherwise you're going to be facing hordes of traffic because there's really only two routes in and out of that track. <laughs> um, you can also camp at the location, but for people like me, that's that's a non-starter. I'm not going to camp anywhere. So for me, Silverstone <laughs> for sure. And I've, before we do wrap up, I have a couple of Twitter questions for you. Sure, um, are you ready to take one?
0: Yeah, yeah I, I'm go okay, for Okay, so it. I'll make
1: this one quick. So, this is from our good listener. I didn't realize he changed his Twitter handle, but Bitter Pittsburgher. How big was this weekend for Perez as far as his <laughs> Red Bull F1 future is concerned?
0: Um, I actually have to reread that because I know that's Brad, and I think that uh, you've started something with him. So, uh, you got to reread that one to be no worries.
1: <laughs> how big do you think this weekend was for Perez as far as securing his future with Red Bull?
0: Yeah, I think it was massive. Yeah. I, I think that uh, this was the weekend that uh, that he needed. I mean, I know we were just uh, really going on about um, how, how massive this weekend was uh, for Sebastian Vettel. I think this was equally as important to, to Sergio Perez. I think that he's proven to himself now, okay, I'd won a race. Maybe that was a little bit uh, fortunate that I did so last year, but not really. I mean, you don't just fluke out and win a race. I mean, uh, you 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 know, circumstances aren't that easy in Formula One at, at the at the best of times, and I think that he's proven to himself that uh, that he can do it under pressure. And I know that, uh, like, like we said, he's sort of struggled from time to time, uh, you know, throughout uh, the the first five races of the year, and he's been close to putting it to, together. But I think this was the most complete weekend uh, that we've seen from him so far, and I think that he did a phenomenal job um, to 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 really. I don't think uh, that maybe he intentionally was uh you know slowing down or you know behind Max but I think he did he was just pacey enough to keep uh, Lewis behind him, and uh, certainly at times that that gap grew. And I think that uh, he—I don't think he—he he really felt intimidated uh, by by Lewis. I know that Lewis had a couple looks on him, and I think that he can take a lot away from that uh, fr- from this weekend, and uh, he, and build on it. I mean, when we go to, to to France, to Britain, to Hungary, some of these races that we have coming up over the next uh, month and a half, two months uh, before the the the, the 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 summer break, I'm excited to see where it's going with this. Sergio Perez. And I think that uh, it was a great weekend. And I think what was also really interesting to see that in the um, in the paddock there after the race, that not only was he high-fiving and hugging with his pit crew and with his team, there was also a uh, you know good exchange with uh, some of the guys from uh, from Aston Martin, which used to be Racing Point, which was the team that he raced for for a couple of years, n- a number of years actually, and one that uh, raced at Secure last year. So I think that as uh, is a, is a testament to what kind of a you know a person he is and how much he's liked uh, within the paddock, and I, I think that. Uh, you know, if you're at Sergio Perez right now, I, I think this is, uh, you know, you're you're in a pretty good uh, place, and I think you're eager to get going to the uh, the, the, the next race weekend and and do it all over Absolutely. again.
1: Absolutely. Two more quick questions. So I'll take this one, and I'll sure. pass one to you. So this is from listener okay. Joel Plorde, and I, I apologize, I'm terrible, terrible, terrible with last names. Why didn't Lewis just try to finish the race? So this is the the restart after the red flag. Why didn't Lewis just try to finish the race and grab some points instead of gunning it at the restart? so I, I think the consideration here is that theoretically Hamilton has the fastest car. And I think the mentality at that point is you're never going to lag or intentionally have a slow start when the lights go green is psychologically, it's just not in his makeup. So the lights go yeah. green, you're going to go full throttle wide open into that front corner. The other consideration is, and I get where he's coming from, which is, Hey, you know what? he, he committed to a risky maneuver when he could have just cashed in on some points i think the main menta- or the kind of the main consideration here is one he's potentially got the fastest car he's the he's the best off the line in formula 1 so in normal circumstance he would have kind of cleared that corner and been in the lead and finished the race unfortunately there was the mistake with the the magic brake functionality and set up on the car. But I think the other consideration too is the main reason you want to get a jump on everyone else is you don't want to be in traffic as you navigate the first and second and third corner. Because if you're navigating those corners while you're packed in traffic and you're going to those corners three or four cars wide, you're ultimately at the mm-hmm. mercy of whatever mistakes those other drivers might make. So the risk is that if you don't try to jump out in front of the rest of the pack, you could get caught up with other cars and get collected into a collision or an accident or have your race compromised that way. So I think what he did in terms of just trying to jump ahead of the traffic and avoid that mess going into the first and second corner was absolutely the right thing. And then one more question for you. This is from Renee Karens, Renee Karens. Uh, I have another question. A lot is made of the toe slash slipstream and qualifying that offers enormous advantages, but normally in a race, I often hear about drivers not wanting to be in the dirty air behind a car because of grip and tire wear, but there would be a slipstream then as well. Right? So why is being in someone's slipstream, not something they want, unless it's the back who's straight.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, normally you're going to get issues like uh, you know the, the the heat that's generated from the car in front of you is going to overheat your tires, is going to overheat your brakes if you're behind there for like a um, you know, prolonged uh, period of time. But when it comes to like a very short uh, stint behind uh, the car in front of you, especially if it's one of your teammates and uh, perhaps you're setting it up, I mean, this is uh, something we also see in uh, in Russia at Sochi. Is that uh, you're letting the car in front of you punch a, a hole in the air, and uh, the, you know you always hear about like the uh, the slipstream and the toe, and effectively it's uh, you know you're you're uh, you're doing less uh, work to to punch that hole in the air. There's less uh, friction, so your car is going to go a little bit uh, faster. So you got to find that uh, that that sweet spot where you can get the benefit of the toe and not be either too uh, far or too close uh, to the car in front of you and uh, certainly it, it does have uh, benefits i mean uh, th- that is uh, one of those places like in russia that uh, you know th- that is like a, a known tactic and uh, at uh, at um Azerbaijan also as well I mean it it does um, you know feature in some of the tracks uh, throughout the calendar not all the time but uh, if you're sitting behind a, a car in front of you uh, during a race it is certainly not uh, the, uh, the 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 place to be especially if you get to one of those um, situations where you're you're kind of close but not quite close enough even with the DRS to to be able to overtake that car in front of you and then, uh, you know, push up the track and try and make a, a move on the, uh, the, the the car in front of you. Did you want to add something to nope. that? Because I also want to just circle back for a moment. And I just wanted to say uh, something about that uh, one from, from Joel yeah, as please. well. Because so uh,
1: I'll just it, add quickly to that one. The best way, the, yeah. the way that I kind of think about this is imagine you're running down the street and you're holding a, an yeah. umbrella behind you. Like. All of that air that's getting caught up in the umbrella, that's like the drag and that's slowing you down. Now, if you were running behind somebody holding an umbrella, well, that umbrella's already done the work because it's already capturing all that drag. So if you can get into that tight pocket in that car in front of you, like you said, that car is doing all the work to punch a hole in that air so your car doesn't have to do it. So you can kind of tuck in your car's not doing as much work and then you have that opportunity to step out. Now, if you're two or three or four car lengths behind that car, you're outside of that pocket, you're outside of that slipstream. So you're now getting the dirty air that's waving off of that car and bouncing all over the aerodynamics of your vehicle. But go on, please.
0: Yeah. Could you just uh, set up that one there from, from Joel again? Um, I just want to make sure that uh, I get uh, all of the address, all those points. Cause there's a couple of things I had to uh, pop into my head when you were replying yeah, to him. So
1: let me just bring Joel's question up here again. So Joel's question was, why didn't Lewis just try to finish the race and grab some points instead of gunning it yeah. at the restart when the lights went green?
0: Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And so a couple of things on that. I totally agree with you, uh, what you're saying that uh, it's just not in his makeup. I think that uh, he just, uh, he saw blood in the water. He decided to go for it and try and get uh, maximum points to not only just to uh, close that small point uh, deficit that he had to Max coming into this race, but extend it or you know, close that and extend on Max and really inflict uh, maximum damage on, uh, on Max. But just to, on, on the flip side of that, just going back to the start of the race itself, you know, Max starting third behind Lewis, behind Charles, who was on pole. I thought that Max played it very conservatively, didn't try to get uh, too close or get mixed up in anything at the beginning of the race, especially through that first uh, lap or two when it can be quite uh, chaotic and especially on a track like ba- Baku that it can get uh, very chaotic. I-, I thought that it was interesting to watch because to me it was an indication that uh, that he really seemed to be playing right. the long game. And I think that uh, it's it's interesting to see because um, not to suggest that uh, that Max isn't a, a smart racing driver, but I think that it's just another indication of where he's really starting to mature. That he's, um, I, I felt that it was a real conscious thing that uh, he knew that uh, that this race was probably there for the uh, for the taking if he just waited and just uh, bided his time to the you know the the you know just waited until the moment uh, presented itself and I mean let's not forget I mean the one thing that we have to that that we've been completely remiss and negligent not to address uh, thus far is the fact that when it came to the first round of pit stops when they, they they changed from the softs to the hard tires that Lewis went in had a howling bad stop of four and a half or 4.6 seconds which wasn't necessarily the fault of the team it was just that uh, one of the uh, the alpha toweries was coming into the the same time so they had to hold Break Lewis off. in his pit Break box off. for a second or two longer but then you have Max coming in the very lap uh, afterwards he must he just he had a real flying lap around there he went in Red Bull did what they do best they had a sub two second stop to get all four tires on Max he goes out and uh, when he's coming around He's going into turn two as Lewis is just coming around turn one. And then, you know, on race radio, you have an astonished Lewis. I mean, his eyes must have been huge when he saw where Max was. And he said, how's he so far ahead of me? (laughs) I mean, it was, uh, that's, I I think was one of the, you know, astonishing moments from the race. And I think that uh, that that's why it was, uh, you know, if you're a fan of Max, it was, it was doubly hard to watch that crash of Max's just because they did everything right on and off the track to get uh, you know to to win this race and for max to win this race and it was just so cruel to see that uh, you know that uh, that incident when his tire deflated and uh, completely came apart like that because he did everything right and the team stepped up big time to give him a great stop because Sergio didn't get a great stop when he went in. He was at about four and a half seconds Yeah, two
1: other comments I want to add before we sign off here because I thought they were fairly interesting. One is, and I don't know if you picked up on this, there was a point where they broadcast some of the radio when Lando Norris was on the radio and I I guess at this point he just come out of the pits and he was behind Bottas but he'd made a comment Mm -hmm. to the team about how many errors, mistakes that Bottas was making He'd made a comment and I'd written it down, but I can't find the notes here that Bottas is making mistakes all over the track, which I thought was, I thought that was very interesting that another driver would share that observation. Obviously he didn't know it was going to be on TV, but that he shared the other observation. The other thing, and we didn't touch on this is definitely recognition for the Alpha Tori team to a fantastic mm-hmm. weekend. The fact that they take a podium, the fact that, and I'm just going to take a look here, that Pierre Gasly finishes third. So he rakes in 15 points and that Yuki for the first time in a number of weeks. And I guess the last time that Yuki had been on the, the podium or had been in the points was race one in Bahrain. So I thought that was great. Yeah. And I think the other piece too, because there was a lot of kind of commentary offline and a lot of our listeners have been reaching out about the fact that Helmet Marco and the Red Bull team had relocated Yuki to Italy. And why had they done that? And I think some of the assumption was that maybe he was getting a little bit wild in England with all this freedom, but, as it seems, <laughs> as it seems, it might actually be a slightly darker reason. And it sounds like Yuki may have been struggling with some mental health issues and they wanted to bring him closer to some support mechanisms. So it was really yeah. great to see him finish in the points. But there was a point on lap 10 where they broadcast the radio where the team was asking him to, I quote, and I quote, push harder on the tires. Push flat out. And maybe I misheard this, but Yuki's response is, I am. Shut up. I just, I burst (laughs) out laughing and I had to rewind that and replay it a bunch of times. But I just, I get such a kick out of Yuki. He's just such a personality and such a character. I was just so happy to see him and Alpha Tori have a great weekend.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it was wonderful to see Pierre get on the uh, the, the the podium once again. I think that uh, quietly he's done some very good things since uh, he was uh, you know demoted or sent back to to AlphaTauri from Red Bull a couple of years ago. But uh, I mean, he he has it in him, and it is going to be interesting to see where his career goes from 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 totally. here. Right? I mean. At some point, uh, I, I think that uh, Pierre is going to outgrow Alpha Tauri. I mean, they're they're doing some wonderful things there, but it was really good to see uh, Yuki have a good race because I, you know, we were both very very impressed with the the, the outing that he had in Bahrain, and then uh, he's uh, struggled, uh, you know, subsequently over the past uh, several races. It was great to see him, uh, you know, get back into a good position today, and hopefully he can build on that. And uh, we'll we'll see what happens at the next race. Which is, is it? France now? We're, I've completely we're off forgotten. France,
1: and it happens in a hurry. And I think I posted yeah. something to the effect that we have three Grand Prix and four weekends, or four Grand Prix and five weekends. There's a lot of bring out yeah, there's, there's a lot of F one coming, and I, I think I posted the, <laughs> the baby let's go meme. But uh, there's reason to be excited if you're a Formula One fan because it comes fast. More puns. It comes fast and furious as we head into the summer break.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mark, that's uh, I think that's all we got uh, for for tonight, uh, this afternoon. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you guys for checking in on the live stream on YouTube. Uh, thank you for uh, the, the the tweets and the comments and everything like that. That's wonderful. We're going to sign off now, but we'll be back in a couple of days. Until then, if you want to uh, get in touch, by all means, uh, do so. Give us a follow on Twitter at F one pod or send us an email at scuderiaf one pod at gmail.com. If you like the show, please, by all means, uh, go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you download, listen to your podcasts and enjoy them and leave us a nice uh, rating review uh, we would uh, very uh, much uh, appreciate that and it's a great way to help uh, grow the show and uh, share it with other fans and with that it or with that that's that you know i'm, I'm running out of uh, steam here i need another cup of coffee <laughs> anyways on that note we're gonna wrap it up take care guys have a great uh, week and we'll talk to you again soon bye for now